Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Details Matter, was given on February 10th, 2019 by Bethany Shea in the series, The Gospel According to Mark. All right, so we are starting a new series on Mark. And last uh, Thursday in Bible study, we looked at the first little portion of Mark. Uh, It was a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to what comes about this Thursday. Um, So some of you kind of know a little bit of the background because you were at Bible study, but uh, I wanted just to give a little bit of a background so we can know kind of where we're heading this season and what it looks like in this, uh, in this, the gospel um, of Mark. Uh, it was written about 30 years before Jesus was killed and then uh, was resurrected. Uh, what? After. Did I say before? <laughs> Mark was really intuitive. <laughs> after, thank you, Ian, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, it was during a time when Christians were experiencing a lot of violent oppression from Rome. Rome was occupying the area of Israel. Uh, During that time, they were experiencing a harsh taxation. Uh, They were having this increased instability within the life of of their communities, and and they were kind of losing their their true autonomy of who they were as a people because of Rome. And so the Hebrew people had been praying for and kind of holding out for a Messiah to come. And the way that they expected the Messiah to come, or God's chosen one, was through some sort of militaristic effort, a rescue in the form of like a triumphant king who was chosen by God to to bring Israel back to their place of of where they were supposed to be. Um, And so the people knew what to look for and knew the kind of person to expect. The writer of Mark is thought by historians to be the same John Mark that's talked about in the book of Acts, uh, Acts 12. Uh, John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, and he was someone who spent a lot of time with Peter and Paul. And there's a story in Acts 12 where there's this ruthless king named uh, Herod Antipas. He's rounding up Christians everywhere and imprisoning them. And then during this time, he actually kills and murders um, James. James is the brother of John, like one of Jesus' very best friends. Herod uh, imprisons him and murders him. And then he like sends out a poll out to the community and he realizes that there's, there's a lot of people in the community that are approving of what Herod just did. And so he's like, oh, this is great. I can get I can get the approval that I need for this. I can get the backing. And he starts rounding up even more Christians to persecute and kill them. And in the process, he gets Peter. So Peter is in prison and all of his, his friends and, and co-disciples and, and church People, all of Peter's friends are gathered together in a house during this time, and the house is Mark's mom's house. So they're all in Mark's mom's house, and they're all praying that Peter is released, and, and an angel releases Peter, and he goes back, and, he, and he's able to worship with Mark at Mark's mom's house. So the thing that I really appreciate about God's word is that it didn't arrive to us in a vacuum. It was written by people who had experienced real-life interactions and encounters with other Christians, with other Roman officials, with other people in their lives. And so I like to always think about, like, well, who, who is Mark? Like, who do you think he was? What was that like for him 
to experience the things he experienced and then to write down his experiences in it. So, um, you know, I, I, I was always imagining like Mark had such an encounter with the love of Jesus through Jesus' disciples, specifically through Peter. He probably wanted to know everything he possibly could know about Jesus. And I can imagine Peter and Mark like hanging out together and walking together and eating together and reading the Bible together, the Hebrew Bible. And, and Mark is so hungry to know Jesus like Peter knew Jesus. Like I can imagine him saying, you know, Peter, tell me, t- tell me about the healings. Tell me about all the healings that Jesus did, that you witnessed. I want to hear every detail of all those healings. And then Peter would, would tell him about it. Or, or, or Peter, tell me about the parables. Which one was the most confusing parable for you? Which one is still confusing? I want to hear about all of it. I want you to tell me all of it. And Peter would tell him. And, or P- Peter, what was, what was the thing that you remember most about Jesus? Like what was the most profound moment you had with Jesus? And I can imagine Peter going, okay, let me tell you the story where I was like, telling Jesus that he shouldn't do something. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That was something that I remember. (laughs) I bet there were a lot of conversations like that. Peter, help me to know Jesus like you knew Jesus. I want to know Jesus like you knew Jesus. And I wonder if Mark, while soaking up all he could about Jesus, kept thinking about all of the people that he would encounter or even not encounter who wouldn't get an opportunity to be friends with the original disciples like Mark was able to have. Like, I wonder if Mark had those same messianic expectations like the rest of the Jewish peoples where the Messiah was, like, going to come on a war horse with military might and military power and was going to overthrow Rome and all of their oppressors. And I wonder if Mark felt this expectation shift when he encountered the Messiah through Peter, not as one of war and military power, but one as a suffering servant. I wonder if Mark felt like that deep calling within him to write it down, to to write down what he's seen and what he's heard and what he's experienced of this Messiah who kept like breaking apart his expectations and then piecing his world back together with this new way of living. Mark had to write down the beginning of like a new era, essentially. And I wonder if God caused such a disruption in Mark's life through his encounters with Peter and with Paul and with Barnabas that he couldn't help but write down the accounts of Jesus for anybody else to read in the future. I think God is always breaking apart our expectations and causing major disruption in our lives because God is always making us new. And the only way we can be made new is by allowing our old understandings to go. So turn with me to Mark chapter one. We're gonna sit in this passage today. Mark is right after Matthew. It is the first, I think I said this, it's the first gospel written. Even though it comes after Matthew, it's, uh, yeah, the first gospel written. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13 today. And, um, and as I read it, I, I want to, I mean, just take, take a note of the things that are interesting or the things that are coming up or maybe even things that we talked about in Bible study. And we'll just kind of chat about that for a minute. So it says in verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. 
So I, I want to pause there for a second. <laughs> this whole book, what we're going to read throughout the next season of our lives together, this whole book is about the good news of Jesus the Messiah. Every story, every encounter, every miracle and healing and prayer and parable is something good to hear. It's good news. This is the good news of Jesus the Messiah. And Mark wants the reader to know and interpret everything that we read forward from this point on through the the reality, this lens, that this is good news about Jesus the Messiah. All right. Uh, It says here, as written in Isaiah, the prophet's, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, who I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. All right. So before we get into the teaching, anything coming up for you or anything that was weird or, I don't know, anything that came up even in Bible study this week? Anybody fried grasshoppers before? They're pretty good. Tastes like french fries. I don't think he ate them fried, though. What were you going to say, Megan? I would say, I just think it's really interesting how, like, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. It's kind of hard to wrap. Because he'll be like, oh, this is my son. And then, yeah, he's in the Spirit. It's just how it defines those parts. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of confusing. It is. It is a little bit confusing. That's good. We'll, get, we'll probably get into that in Bible study this week. Yeah. Anything else? It's interesting how detailed uh, Mark is about John Baptist yeah. and diet. Yeah. yeah. So detailed. So interesting. Anything else? All right. Okay. So this gospel that, that Mark wrote, um, I mean, he, it was not only to bring comfort and courage and counsel to Christians who were experiencing persecution in Rome, like a very violent persecution. Um, it was written, I think it was written to disrupt the Jewish mindset of what the Messiah looks like. And, and what, what we see throughout this whole gospel is 
is Mark is trying to show that the, that the Messiah is the suffering servant, not the militaristic person coming on a war horse. And when you read the Bible, what you see throughout the beginning pages is this disruption that God continually paints into it and writes into it, this disruption of our expectations and of our understandings uh, that is always happening. And I think that God is always disrupting our expectations uh, because God wants us to see something that we didn't see before. So I want to explain it with um, a passage of Scripture that is actually takes place in the book of uh, of Exodus and then into Leviticus, which I know you are all in Leviticus this morning because why not? Uh, so throughout the Bible, we read of a God who's been looking for people to point the rest of the world to God's goodness and love. And in the Old Testament, if you read in Genesis, what we discover is God chooses a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is going to be blessed by God to be a blessing to other people, to show the rest of the world of God's goodness and of God's love. And so then we read about Abraham's family growing vast and large and and, and through these generations of ups and downs and wonderings where they're going to be. And and throughout, what we find is that this group of people from uh, different reasons end up in Egypt. They find themselves in Egypt. And the Bible accounts this family growing so large that the Egyptian leaders are so afraid that the Israelites will eventually take over. So before they grow so large they could no longer control them, the Egyptians enslave the people of Israel and then force them into a type of bondage. Now slavery, what you can read about in American history, what we read about everywhere, slavery was a way of ordering the world were those in power brutally subjected and owned other human beings. Slaves, these slaves had become a people without a clear identity because there were generations of slaves here in Egypt. They were fully fragmented in their in their well-being and in their in their space of who they were. And the Hebrew Bible tells the story of a God who intervened to reshape a people and their future by reordering their particular worldview. And he does this by calling a guy named Moses, right? And you all remember the story. Many of you remember the story. He's a particular man because he was a Hebrew and Egyptian, but either not enough Hebrew and not enough Egyptian to actually belong to anything. He always found like himself in this space of, of flux. Um, and he, God invites Moses to go to Egypt to ask the Pharaoh to let the Hebrew slaves go. And then he then guides this multitude of people, I mean, millions and millions of people out of Egypt. And through the string of events that happen in the story in Exodus, these, these uh, miracles and events that are used to discount the Egyptian gods and goddesses and pharaohs, what we see is the Hebrews are released from their captors and they are sent along with Moses. And so all of these things that happen are to implant in the Israelites' brain that this God is not like those gods. This God is not uh, is doing something differently than the gods that they've always known as the gods of Egypt. So we read throughout Exodus the story of God reshaping an enslaved people, Hebrew people, 
into a free Hebrew people. And God does this by giving them good communal rules, uh, these healthy laws, these, these meaningful rituals, and that we read about again and again. And the stories of Exodus expose a people who are becoming reconnected to themselves, to each other, to God, and to the earth. Almost like the story of like uh, another story of shalom that's happening through God taking people out of Egypt. <laughs> Almost like a new creation story. That's right. I like that. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's this incredible story that we read about in the Bible. And the book of Exodus shows like this reshaping of people, this new creation that's happening. And it shows a disruption of their expectations. In the, in the book of, uh, of Exodus as well, um, Moses has a brother named Aaron, if you remember that story. And Aaron is uh, all, of the, all of the people are down at the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses is up on the mountain and God is with Moses and giving him all these different rules and regulations and rituals and commandments of how, how to form this people into a free people, how to disrupt the slavery in their brains and change them into a people that are now free. And the people are freaking out because they're like, oh, we're in the wilderness all by ourselves and God must have abandoned us. Like, we don't know where God is. And Aaron responds by saying, give me all your jewelry. And so they give him all of his jewelry, and he, he melts the jewelry down. He forms a calf, this golden calf, for them to worship God with because he cares so much for the people, and he wants the people to not forget God. He's doing it from this really important space in his heart. He wants the people to feel connected to God again. And the reason that this is so heartbreaking in the story is because Aaron unknowingly helps the people go back to what's familiar, where the gods were an image that they could worship. The Egyptian gods looked like a golden calf. They went back to that familiar pattern, and God, the Lord wanted to break them free from those familiar patterns of what had been enslaving them. God was wanting to disrupt their expectations. God's been trying to undo the slavery that was embedded in God's people, and God wants nothing to stand in the way of that happening. And you just see the story again and again, God wanting to, to disrupt our sense of identity, to, to help us to see that we are the beloved children of God, that God will do anything to help us experience that truth. So then you get to the book of Leviticus which is a book that if you're like, oh, I'm going to read through the Bible in the year or whatever, you get to Leviticus and you're like, maybe I'll start again next year. It's really hard to get through. And Leviticus shows the Hebrew people how to reveal God. And so they, God wants to be revealed by the people as a God of freedom and wholeness and love. And we cannot reveal this God of freedom, wholeness, and love when we're living in an, in, in an enslaved mindset. So the book of Leviticus is showing the people how to be set free emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually from what enslaves us so God can be glorified by the community. And I know this is a lot to take in, but it, I swear it has meaning and it has value. There's this part in the story of Leviticus where God, like the first, like I think it's six or seven chapters, God is telling uh, the people, uh, telling Aaron specifically, hey, this is what it looks like to do these sacrifices. This is the sacrifice for the community of this. This is the sacrifice for the harvest. This is the sacrifice for that. And then he gets to this last chapter, and he talks about the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of 
all of the whole community. And then right after that, he says, Aaron, you will be a priest. You will be the person that will help the people know how to not be enslaved any longer. You are going to be my mouthpiece, and I am trusting you to do this. And the way you're going to show that to be true is not just through the sacrifices, but it's also going to be with what you wear. You need to wear the most ornate robes. Every jewel, every sparkle, every little detail is one so when people see you, they remember that they are no longer enslaved in Egypt any longer. They will see that they are not that person any longer. They are something new that I am moving you into as a people. They are free to worship me. And so he gives them all these details of how he's supposed to look, how he's supposed to act, how the sacrificial system is supposed to go. And then it goes into this space where, where God says, now let's try this out. Let's try this out, Aaron. And he says, Aaron, I want you to take a bull calf, the same size, the same shape, the same look as that golden one. And I want you to bring all of the people around you. And I want you to sacrifice it before the people as this way of recognizing that not only am I forgiving the sins of the people, Aaron, I am forgiving the one that you did. I'm reinstating you because I'm doing something new through your life. It's like this amazing picture of God's grace that shows that God wants to reshape a people that have been enslaved to the patterns of the way they've always lived into a people of joyful freedom in God's glory. The details mattered because God wanted people to be able to receive his love through a disruption. But over time, when you read the Bible, what we see is that the details begin to matter more than the heart. So later on, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But God, you put all these sacrifices in place. Don't you remember? You told us how to do it. You showed us how we're supposed to do it. What do you mean you're desiring something different? And God's like, no, 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 no. The sacrifices were to reshape your heart, but you are becoming more about the sacrifices than you are about the heart of the matter. You're focused more on making sure everyone's getting it right than anybody actually belonging and being able to participate so fully. And it, it's like this, anyway, this beautiful picture. I just love it so much. And so it's, it's like what you see is that the rituals and the traditions and the robes and, and, and the sacrifices became more important than the people themselves. So we get to John the Baptist that we just read about. This guy where there's such detail about John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Why are those details important? I, John was from the priestly line of Aaron. He was expected to fulfill that honor of the priesthood by living in the temple not in the wilderness, by eating the choice meats from the sacrifices provided as a, a bonus for being a priest, not eating locusts and wild honey, by wearing these ornate robes. He was supposed to wear these robes. It's in the Bible. It's commanded. Not wearing camel hair and a leather belt and looking like a crazy person out in the wilderness. Like, I think John knew that the, de the details were becoming a sort of golden calf that was leading people back into a form of slavery to religion instead of service to God. 
He knew that God was doing a new thing and God desired to form a people that was no longer defined by slavery to right behavior, but was defined by freedom to grace-filled belonging. Creating a people who could simply receive God's love without having to do all of these things first. And I think that God was calling John to the priesthood, but it wasn't going to look how the people expected it to look. And I think this disruption of our expectations, this obscene and impoverished way of living caused people to pay attention. For John to dress and act in such a way, it caused people to pay attention. They came out, it says here in the Bible, it says like they came from all, the whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him because they were so curious of this thing that was absolutely unexpected. The entire foundation of Mark's gospel begins in these few lines that we just read. So the rest of the gospel needs to be interpreted through this thing that John was doing to make way for Jesus. This obviously misguided priest in the middle of a wilderness where nothing good could happen because nothing good happens in a wilderness, right? And that Mark was trying to show that through this priest and through this Messiah who looks like a suffering servant, things aren't going to be the way that we were expecting them to be. And I think the wilderness, honestly, the wilderness, when I read this, is kind of that place where God shows up in unexpected ways. And as I was writing this, I kept thinking that there are some of us in this room that have been in wildernesses before or were in a wilderness of sorts today, where you might feel like you're wandering in a desolate or lonely or, 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 or a place where you might just feel a little bit hopeless. Or maybe life isn't turning out the way that you expected it to go. Maybe you're in the midst of a rejection or a loss or you're questioning your sense of self-worth or wondering who God is calling you to be or even if God is even around. Maybe the story you're living out isn't the story you would have written for yourself when you were a teenager or even in your 20s. This is not the story I would have written out for myself. And it feels like you're in the midst of a wilderness wasteland. And I know that feeling. I know what it feels like um, to feel like God has abandoned you or to feel like, uh, is God even real or is God, why would God even allow me to go through this sort of thing? And it's hard to see what God is doing. And it's hard to see that God is present when I'm walking in a wilderness. But this passage that we just read, it takes place in a wilderness. And in part of it, it's the wilderness in verse 4. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. And in that wilderness, people came to him. So he wasn't alone, but it was still a wilderness of sorts. And so we see the wilderness that Jesus experiences is one where community is around him. But then the next wilderness in verse 12 sent him out to the wilderness and is a wilderness of utter loneliness. And I think a lot of us have experienced both kinds of wildernesses, right? We're like, we're in the midst of community. We're not alone, but yet we still feel like things aren't quite right. Or we're in a space of complete and utter loneliness. And when I'm in a wilderness, I often find that I will either lean deeper into God 
or I will either spiral away. And when I lean deeper into God, that one response brings me a sense of peace that passes understanding. And the other response kind of brings about this chaotic mind and like unstable footing and wondering what I'm even doing. I feel like I'm on this downward spiral. And if you are in a wilderness right now, I, my prayer for you is just to trust that God is with you and that you can press into God's presence. And maybe you're in a wilderness because you've expected God to show up in a certain way with a bolt of lightning or with a major earthquake or like the writing on the wall that we read about in the Bible. Like what, those people experienced God like that. Why don't I experience God like that? And so God just keeps disappointing you. Or maybe God has been showing up for a long time, but we just haven't been paying attention. Maybe we've been looking to tradition or religion or that big, great spiritual worship service that we just need to get to, but God's actually been nudging you through your roommate. Or God's been showing up in that dandelion that that kid picked for you, that random encounter. Maybe we've been seeking God through the American understanding of the white, male, straight pastor who looks like the, all the other pastors and we're expecting God to show up like that. But God has actually been working through a woman who never thought she'd be allowed to preach. <laughs> I think God shows up through the lesbian who's so in love with Jesus. I think God shows up through a child who shouldn't have a voice but yet does. I think God shows up through the refugee who's living in Arcata. I think God shows up through the people who stayed in our night shelter last night. I think God keeps showing up in places that we aren't actually looking for God to show up. And in that place, we miss it. I think God keeps showing up and whispering to you through each breath you take, but you just never notice. And maybe the wilderness that we find ourselves in is a place of disruption that God can actually do his best work in because we're actually finally paying attention. And I think that maybe God is inviting us to start paying attention to where God has been moving all along. That's what I got from this passage today. Any thoughts before we go into our time of response? Yeah, Michael. You know, I went to Bible study on Thursday, and yeah. there was one thing that stuck out on me, this, these passages, and, you know, that was in verse 2, it says he's sending us a messenger, and in verse 3 it says, you know, he's shouting into the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Yeah. And then verse 4 it says he preaches a message of repentance, you know, and sin and stuff, and, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that says, little children guard yourself from anything that might take God's rightful place in your heart. Right. You know, and it's like that message is just telling you that we might be having some kind of sin in our life that's keeping us in the wilderness away from God, and we need to clear all of that out to be yeah. for, you know, like the story with the ten virgins. Mm-hmm. If I have, go home. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a really good point where, like, John is saying, prepare, or Isaiah is saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And I think that there's a lot in our lives that, that 
we're not preparing the way or, or, or we're not allowing the spirit to prepare the way in our lives. And so it's John was the preparer for Jesus, but I believe the Holy Spirit and the community is the preparer for each of us. So how are we making the path straight for our brothers and sisters even to experience God's presence? Yeah. Anything else? All right. I'm going to pray, and then um, we're going to go into our time of response, and we're going to sing together and focus our attention to Jesus. Um, and there's generosity boxes, and there's communion in the back, of course. Whenever you're, whenever you're ready, you can come back and receive the bread and the juice. Um, but I'm excited to see where God takes us on this, on this, uh, this series in Mark. I've never spent much time in Mark, so I'm really stoked to... And we have different people who will be teaching, which I'm very excited about as well. So let's pray. Jesus, um, God, I thank you that you that you have continually disrupted our expectations. And Lord, the minute that we get so stuck on seeing, um, only being able to see you in a specific way or believe that you can only move in this sort of experience, Lord, God, I pray that you will start just ripping down those walls, that you will tear off our blinders and that we can see that you are up to something really, really cool in this world and that you have invited us to be a part of it. Give us hearts of humility. Give us hearts that are willing and ready to worship you. Lord, we lay down our expectations and we want to come before you with great hope and great joy. Lord, thank you for releasing us from what enslaves us and bringing us to a new way of living. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.